And it's another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in. Whether that be live over at Joy620, you're listening to the podcast at investinghope.com, Google Play, iTunes, Podbeam, Spotify, wherever podcasts are found. You can find this show. I first want to apologize that my voice is kind of uh, going in and out, and so uh, that's just part of life and part of living in East Tennessee and allergies and, and all the like. So I'll, I'll do the best I can to get through. Uh, today, but you don't want to hear about that. What what you want to hear about is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at uh, we're going to we're going to focus heavily on marriage. We're going to focus heavily on uh, there's an article over at the Hill about young men being single and, and kind of what that means uh, for the trajectory of marriage, what that means for our country, what that means for the future. Uh, last week we talked about. Um, depression in adolescence, specifically teen girls, that's on the rise. We may touch on that a little bit uh, as well as some new data has come out. Uh, but, but we're just going to focus on why marriage matters. Uh, so we'll start with the, this piece from the Hill, and then we'll look at a piece uh, that, that's talking about the benefits of marriage, what comes with that uh, typically, and then, and then we'll look at kind of how we can uh, address these issues from a biblical worldview. And, and so some of you are going, well, what's this got to do with life and abortion? Well, it has to do with uh, ultimately the goal is to point people to truth. Ultimately, the goal is to get them to see there's something greater uh, out there. And so when we talk about choosing life, we, when we talk about uh, abundant life, we, we think through the lens of a biblical marriage. We think through the lens of uh, families, mom, dad, children together. And so uh, our society is now starting to see some of the problems that we're facing is because we have devalued marriage. Some of the problems that we're facing is because we have devalued manhood. Some of the problems that we're facing is because we devalued womanhood. And a secular society is trying to figure out how to answer this. A secular society can look at the data and say, fatherlessness causes a lot of bad things in our society. Most men being single causes bad things in our society. Marriage declining causes bad things in our society. They can see that, but their answer to these things is a struggle. Well, why is it, why is it a struggle? It's a struggle because our secular society also says that a man can be a woman and a woman can be a man, and there are no gender roles. Well, if, if, if that is true, then, then you can't then seek to fix fatherlessness. You can't seek to fix marriage because you have no framework to fix it. So that's where the church comes in. That's where the gospel comes in, where we, we have the answers to this. But let's look at this piece over at the Hill. The, the title is, Most Young Men Are Single, Most Young Women Are Not. More than 60% of young men are single, nearly twice the rate of unattached young women, signaling a larger breakdown in the social, romantic, and sexual life of the American male. Men in their 20s are more likely than women in their 20s to be romantically uninvolved, sexually dormant, friendless, and lonely. They stand at the vanguard of an epidemic of declining marriage, sexuality, and relationships that afflicts all, all of young America. We're in a crisis of connection, said Niobe Way, a psychology professor and founder of the Project for the Advancement of Our Common Humanity at New York University. Disconnection from ourselves and disconnection from each other, and it's getting worse, she said. 
In the worst case scenario, the young American man's social disconnect can have tragic consequences. Young men commit suicide at four times the rate of young women. Younger men are largely responsible for rising rates of mass shootings, a trend some researchers link to their growing social isolation. Societal changes that began in the Eisenhower years have eroded the patriarchy that once ruled the American home, classroom, and workplace. Women now collect nearly 60% of bachelor's degrees. Men still earn more, but among the youngest adults, the income gap has narrowed to $43 a week. Scholars say the new era of gender parity has reshaped relationship dynamics, empowering young women and, in many cases, removing young men from the equation. Women don't need to be in long-term relationships. They don't need to be married. They'd rather go to brunch with friends than have a horrible date, said Greg Matos, a couple and family psychologist in Los Angeles who recently penned a viral article titled, What's Behind the Rise of Lonely Single Men? Recent years have seen a historic rise in unpartnered Americans, particularly among the young. The pandemic made things worse. As of 22, Pew Research Center found 30% of U.S. adults are neither married, living with a partner, nor engaged in a committed relationship. Nearly half of all young adults are single, 34% of women, and a whopping 63% of men. Not surprisingly, the decline in relationships marches astride with the decline in sex. The share of sexually active Americans stands at a 30-year low. Around 30% of young men reported in 2019 that they had no sex in the past year, compared to about 20% of young women. Only half of single men are actively seeking relationships or even casual dates, according to Pew. That figure is declining. You have to think that the pandemic had an impact on some of those numbers, said Fred Rabinowitz, a psychologist and professor at the University of Redlands who studies masculinity. Young men are watching a lot of social media. They're watching a lot of porn, and I think they're getting a lot of their needs met without having to go out, and I think that's starting to be a habit. Even seasoned researchers struggle to fully account for the relationship gap between young women and men. If single young men outnumber single young women, nearly two to one, then who are all the young women dating? Some of them are dating each other. One-fifth of Generation Z identifies uh, as queer, and research suggests bisexual women make up a large share of the young adult uh, community. Young women are also dating and marrying slightly older men, carrying on a tradition that stretches back more than a century. The average age at first marriage is around 30 for men, 28 for women, according to census figures. Heterosexual women are getting more choosy. Women don't want to marry down, to form a long-term relationship to a man with less education and earnings than himself. Said Then herself, said Ronald Levin, a professor emeritus of psychology at the University of Akron, uh, and author of several books on masculinity. In previous generations, young women entered adulthood in a society that expected them to find a financially stable man who would support them through decades of marriage and motherhood. Over the 50s and 60s, that pattern gradually broke down and today is all but gone. Women are tiring of their stereotypical role as full-time therapists for emotionally distant men. They want a partner who is emotionally open and empathetic, the opposite of the age-old masculine ideal. Today in America, women expect more from men, Levent said, and unfortunately, so many men don't have more to give. The same emotional deficits that hurt men in, dating, in a dating pool also hamper them in forming meaningful friendships. 15% of men report having no close friendships, a five-fold increase from 1990, according to research by the Survey Center on American Life. Men are less naturally relational than women, said Richard Reeves, a senior fellow of the Brookings Institute, whose new book, Of Boys and Men, has drawn wide praise. Reeves points to a recent Saturday Night Live sketch that re reimagined the neighborhood dog park as a man park. 
poking fun at this reliance of men on women to do the emotional lifting for them. Social circles have been shrinking for men and women, especially since the pandemic, but men struggle more. 30 years ago, 55% of men reported having six or more close friends. By 2021, that share has slipped to 27%. And I could go on and on, and I'll post the article in the show notes. But, but here's the reality. It's interesting. Last week, we talked about adolescent depression. And then there's a, the study and an article that I'm going to reference to here in just a little bit that, that says a lot of that increase started to happen in 2010, 11, and 12 when the iPhone was introduced to society and also when social media was introduced to society. And so what, what you thought would happen, what many of us thought would happen, social media would connect us to more people. So you have people say, like, I have a thousand friends because they're Facebook friends. Or I have, you know, a thousand followers on Twitter, so I have this connection with all these people. But the reality is, those aren't friendships. Those aren't uh, relationships that are going to last. Those, those, those folks that you are quote-unquote friends with on Facebook, those followers on Twitter, those folks that are liking your Instagram post, many of them will not attend your funeral. Many of them, if not all of them, will not be the ones that carry your casket. They won't write your eulogy. They won't write your obituary. They won't attend your baby shower. They won't attend your wedding. They, they are acquaintances. They are not friends. And so for, for guys especially, we have replaced real friends with a social media following. We have replaced real relationships, real marriage, real courtship with porn. And, and we've done that to the detriment of our society and culture. And so this is why men are lonely. Now, now they'll point to 2020 and the pandemic and how it isolated us, but I think all that did was ramp up what was already happening. And it's easy to look at the pandemic as the boogeyman and point all the, the, the issues there. It's easy for us to go, well, the reason why depression is up is simply because of the pandemic. No, it, it's, it's just a, a cog in the wheel. It's just part of the problem. But many of us don't want to wrestle with the fact that, that social media and smartphones have, have caused a lot of damage. Why? Because we love our social media and we love our smartphones. We're addicted to those things. And if we admit that they have played a role in, in fracturing society, then we admit that we have played a role in fracturing society. And we don't want to admit that. And so when these folks do studies and they say that, you know, the, the most dangerous person in our country is a single man, a lonely single man, that they are more likely to commit mass shootings. They are more likely to be violent. They're four times as likely to commit suicide. See, the, the secular culture doesn't have an answer. Well, what's the answer? Well, they need to have lasting relationships and friendships. They need to be courting women. No, but, but we, we can't have a, a discussion on that with our society because our society would then say, well, there is no difference between a man and a woman. And courtship is old-fashioned. 
But as gospel people, we can come in and say what, what needs to happen is courtship. Best case scenario is always man, woman, and children in the house together as a family unit. That is best case scenario. Even this article would talk about patriarchy and would talk about how men used to lead and now women have kind of uh, overtaken that. Well, if you, if you tell generations of men that you need to be weaker, that it's not up to you to lead, that there are no gender roles, then don't be surprised when those men cower. Don't be surprised when those men are nervous to approach a possible partner. Don't be surprised when those men shirk their responsibilities and don't man up to be the dad that they need to be. When you tell young men they don't have a say in whether that woman has that baby or not, then don't be surprised when that man sees that as an opportunity to just go make a baby and leave. Because you've told him he doesn't have a say in the matter. So there's going to be studies and data that comes out on how we correct this. I mean, I think we overcorrected. <laughs> I think, I think in, in our culture, we went way too far maligning men and attacking men. And many of those men have done exactly what you told them to do. You told them they were dumb. You told them they were stupid. You told them they couldn't lead. You told them they were the, 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 the worst part of our society. You told them they were toxic. So I'm sorry, don't be surprised when they stay at home and don't look for relationships. You've told them that porn doesn't have long-lasting effects on them, so don't be surprised when they dive into it. And so that's where we are as a society, a society that has spent decades attacking men, spent decades attacking traditional manhood, leadership, provision, protection, And then we, we get to 2023 and we go, what happened? I don't get it. I don't understand. And the secular culture doesn't have an answer to it. When we come back, we'll look at the positive benefits of marriage and how we are to encourage that and raise up our young men and young ladies to see it in that way. We'll be back. So as we continue the conversation, I now want to look at there's a there's a study over at uh in a piece um that that's called marital bliss new evidence that marriage promotes flourishing and and it's important that we look at this because oftentimes in our society we are not uh celebrating marriage you know even if even if you go out if if you do have friends and you go out with the fellas oftentimes they complain about the wife at home and when women go out with their, their friends, they, they complain about the man they have at home. So we don't paint a beautiful picture of marriage. We, we dog it. We water it down. We expect it to fail. That used to not be the case. When, when my parents divorced in 1998, a lot of people were, were shocked and surprised. Now, when you hear of a divorce, are you shocked and surprised? I don't think we are. 
But this piece says, as, as Cole Porter taught us when it comes to romantic love, in Spain, the best upper sets do it, Lithuanians and Let's do it, while across the pond, some Argentines without means do it. People say in Boston, even beans do it. Leguims aside, uh, Porter's lyrics apply as well as to marriage as it does to romance. In Lithuania, Argentina, and even Boston, men, women, men and women are still getting hitched. As the anthropologist Joseph Hendrick notes, marriage is one of our species' few near universal cultural inheritance, perhaps standing as the most, uh, most of any and all human institutions. If we peer over the horizon of human history, even our distant ancestors seems to have engaged in long-term sexual pair bonding. But perhaps we liberated moderns can leave all that behind. Perhaps, as Marx and Engels famously proclaimed, uh, and as others have argued, the family as a conservative project that limits human flourishing must be abolished. Sanchez and her fellow travelers are arguably pushing on an open door. However, as contemporary America seems to be well on its way to a post-conjugal future. In 2021, America recorded only 28 marriages per 1,000 unmarried people. That's an all-time low, and down from 76.5 per 1,000 in 1965. Moreover, the United States leads the world in having 23% of our children growing up in single-parent homes, compared to 12% in Germany and just 3% in China. 23% of American children are growing up in single-parent homes. Contemporary detractors notwithstanding, these recent trends are alarming, since much evidence, in fact, indicates that marriage promotes human flourishing, including increased longevity, lower depression, greater happiness, and better outcomes across the board for children. Meta-analysis of more rigorous longitudinal, longitudinal studies have indicated fairly consistent evidence for effects on physical health and longevity, as well as mental health. This literature has, however, been subject to some important methodological critiques. For instance, it, isn't it misleading? Even a, cheaper, a cheater technique, as one critic re recently put it, to compare outcomes for the married to those for the divorced, given that only the married can get divorced. By bracketing failed marriages in this way, don't we artificially inflate the value of existing marriages? In a recent study of marriage and divorce, we and our co-authors have taken on this question squarely examining the effects on well-being not of staying married, but rather of deciding to get married in the first place. We used data on 11,830 female nurses who were unmarried in 1989 and then compared those who married over the next four years to those who did not and followed these groups for 25 years to examine their health and well-being outcomes, including divorce for those who married later in life. Our analysis looked at a number of different well-being Outcomes after 25 years, including physical health and longevity, health behaviors, psychological well-being, and depression, among others. Whenever possible, we also controlled for the same outcomes in 1989 prior to the marriage, along with many other social, demographic, economic, and health-related variables. This helped to rule out the possibility either of confounding um, that economic advantage was promoting both happiness and marriage or reverse causation that the happy are simply more likely to get married. In spite of this more rigorous design, we found that marriage has strong positive effects on, those, on these women's flourishing. Getting married was associated with moderate increases in happiness, purpose in life, and hopefulness, and with modern declines in depression and loneliness. However, we also found substantial effects of marriage on the reduction in smoking, 
heart disease, stroke, and all-cause mortality during the 25-year follow-up on the order of 30% reductions. These remarkably strong benefits obtained even after we factored in the real risk marriage poses, the stress of raising young or not-so-young children, the partial loss of self-determination and a close closet space, uh, and indeed the possibility of the pain and disruption posed by divorce. Why did marriage affect the women in our sample so profoundly? For many of the day, the positive association between marriage and women's flourishing in particular will seem incongruent on its face. It isn't marriage, the problem, that had no name, at least until Barry Frieden gave it one, a prison which chained women to domestic drudgery and intellectual uh, stultification. On the contrary, marriage seems to satisfy a number of social and psychological needs that are particularly pressing for women. For instance, unmarried adults are more likely to be lonely than the married. Of course, companionship and affection are goods desired by virtually everyone. Nonetheless, women on average place a higher premium on socialization and on a personal intimacy than do men who have other things, often one thing in particular, on their mind. It stands to reason, then, that women would particularly benefit from marriage's role in ensuring that most of us don't have to walk through life alone. Marriage is also among our most stable sources of social support. Since the burdens of caring for young children fall more heavily on women than on men, and since women are more likely to want to focus primarily on caring for children than are men, it stands to reason that women would particularly benefit from an institution, not just marriage in general, but specifically lifelong monogamy that encourages men to invest heavily in supporting just one woman and the children they bear together. Given that around 80% of single-parent households are headed by women who often have to battle exhaustion and financial hardship and Ensuring their children's flourishing, it is hardly surprising that women strongly benefit in this respect as well as from the support offered by marriage. The distinctive goods that women generally derive from marriage do not necessarily mean that they benefit more from this institution than do men. Indeed, some prior research has found that marriage promotes longevity and health even for men than even more for men than for women. Perhaps in part because, uh, as as many note, getting married and becoming a father's lowers a man's testosterone, at least in monogamous societies. Besides inflicting men with the indignity of the dad bod, this testosterone suppression system helps to reduce crime, violence, and zero-sum thinking, discouraging the kinds of reckless behavior, bar fights, fast cars, running with the bulls, etc., that account for much of men's reduced life expectancy compared to women. And I can go on and on, but, but you get the point. that There's benefits to marriage, I mean, there's a number of benefits. There's the biblical framework of marriage is how the, the picture is Christ and the church. And that Christ loved the bride so much that he gave his life for the bride. And in the same way, men are supposed to be able to and, and be willing to give up their life for their bride. That's what true leadership is. It isn't an authority figure in the home. It is loving sacrificially. It is truly meaning till death do us part. It is truly meaning in for sickness and in health, for rich or for poor. It is a commitment. It is a covenant. But outside of those things, studies have also shown that people quit smoking. They take care of themselves. They start to eat better. So also we have people living longer that are in marriage relationships. 
Financially, they are more stable. A, ch- a child growing up in a two-parent home is more likely to graduate high school, go to college, find success in life, stay out of jail, stay off of drugs. But yet, when we want to talk about marriage, we, we are told to shut up because, we, well, what's the benefits of it? There's, there's plenty of benefits, biblically and otherwise. So we need to be having these conversations with our children. We need to be having these conversations with our young people and give them something to look forward to. So don't dog marriage. Look at it as an institution that others want to be a part of one day. We'll be back. As we continue today, now I want to look at uh, kind of a continuation of what we talked about last week when it came to uh, adolescent depression. And, and this plays into what we're talking about today with, uh, with loneliness facing our young men, with young men being less likely to get married. And then we looked at how marriage is beneficial to our societies. It's beneficial to individuals. It's beneficial to men. It's beneficial to women. And how all this kind of plays a role. So why are our young people not wanting to get married? Why, why do they feel so lonely? Why are they more depressed now? And, and there's a piece over at Substack that, again, I'll, I'll post on, our, uh, on the show notes. And it's a long piece. I'm not going to go through all of it. But I want to give you a, a brief, uh, you know, quick summary in opening paragraphs and then you can go read, read it in its entirety uh, later. But it says the big story last week was the partial release of the CDC's biannual Youth Risk Behavior Survey, which obviously we talked about uh, in last week's show as well, which showed that most teen girls, 57%, now say that they experience persistent sadness or hopelessness, up from 36% in 2011, and 30% of teen girls now say they have seriously considered suicide, up from 19% in 2011. Boys are doing badly, too, but their rates of depression and anxiety are not as high, and their increases in 2000, since 2011 are smaller. As, as this author showed in February 16th post, the big surprise in the CDC data is that COVID didn't have much effect on the overall trends, which just kept marching on as they have since around 2012. Teens were already socially distanced by 2019, which might explain why COVID restrictions added little to their rates of mental illness on average. Of course, many individuals suffered greatly. Most of the news coverage last week noted that the trends predated COVID, and many of them mentioned social media as a potential cause. A few of them then did the standard thing that journalists have been doing for years, saying essentially, gosh, we just don't know if it's social media because the evidence is all correlational and the correlations are really small. For example, Derek Thompson, one of my favorite data-oriented journalists, wrote a widely read essay in The Atlantic on the multiplicity of possible causes. In a section titled, why is, it, why is it so hard to prove that social media and smartphones are destroying teen mental health? He noted that the academic literature on social media's harms is complicated. And he then quoted one of the main academics studying the issue, Jeff Hancock of Stanford University. There's been absolutely hundreds of social media and mental health studies, almost all showing pretty small effects. In this post, uh, the author will show that Thompson's skepticism was justified in 2019, but it is not justified in 2023. A lot of new work has been published since 2019, and there has been a recent and surprising convergence among the leading opponents in the debate, including Hancock and the author of this piece. 
There is now a great deal of evidence that social media is a substantial cause, not just a tiny correlate of depression and anxiety, and therefore behaviors related to depression and anxiety, including self-harm and suicide. First, the author wants to uh, offer two-stage setting comments. Social media is not the only cause. The larger story is about the rewiring of childhood that began in the 1990s and accelerated in the early 2010s. The author is a social psychologist who is always wary of one-factor explanations for complex social phenomena. In The Coddling of the American Mind, Greg Lukanoff and I showed that there were 16 interwoven threads that produced the explosion of unwisdom that hit American universities in 2015, one of which was the rise of anxiety and depression in Gen Z, those born in and after 1996. A second was the vast overprotection of children that began in the 1990s. In the book that, that, is being, that, that this author is currently writing called Kids in Space, he shows that these two threads are both essential for understanding why teen mental health collapsed in the 2010s. In brief, it's the transition from a play-based childhood involving a lot of risky, unsupervised play, which is essential for overcoming fear and fragility, to a phone-based childhood, which blocks normal human development by taking time away from sleep, play, and in-person socialization, uh, as well as causing addiction and drowning kids in social comparisons they can't win. So this is not a one-factor story, and in future posts, uh, we'll see the research play out. But today's post is about what I believe to be the largest single factor and the only one that can explain why the epidemic started so suddenly around 2012 in multiple countries. The empirical debate has focused on the size of the dose-response effect for individuals, yet much and perhaps most of the action is in the emergent network effects. Once you have once you appreciate the extent to which childhood has been transformed by smartphones and social media, you can see why it's a mistake to focus so narrowly on individual level effects. Nearly all of the research, the hundreds of studies that Hancock referred to, have treated social media as if it were like sugar consumption. The basic question has been how sick do individuals get as a function of how much sugar they consume? What does the curve look like when you graph illness on the y-axis as a function of daily dosage on the x-axis? This is a common and proper approach in medical research where effects are primarily studied at the individual level, and our objective is to know the size of the dose-response relationship. But social media is very different because it transforms social life for everyone, even for those who don't use social media, whereas sugar consumption just harms the consumer. To see why this difference matters, imagine that in 2011, just before the ed epidemic began, a 12-year-old girl was given an iPhone 4 and begin to spend five hours a day taking and editing selfies, posting them on Instagram, and scrolling through hundreds of posts from others. This was at a time when, no, when none of her friends in seventh grade had a smartphone or any other social media account. Support, suppose that Instagram does cause anxiety disorders in a dose-response way, but the size of the correlation with anxiety is smaller than the correlation of social isolation with anxiety. The girl spending five hours a day on Instagram finds her mental health declining, but her friend's mental health is unchanged. We find a clear dose response effect. If she were to quit Instagram, would her mental health improve? Yes. But now, fast forward to 2015, when most girls are on Instagram and all teens are spending far less time with their friends in person. Most social activity is now uh, online, channeled through posts, comments, and emojis on Instagram, Snapchat, and a few other platforms. Childhood has been rewired. It has become phone-based, and rates of anxiety and depression are soaring. 
Suppose that in 2015, a 12-year-old girl decided to quit all social media platforms. Would her mental health improve? Well, not necessarily. If all of her friends continued to spend five hours a day on the various platforms, then she'd find it difficult to stay in touch with them. She'd be out of the loop and socially isolated. If the isolation effect is larger than the dose response effect, then her mental health might even get worse. When we look across thousands of girls, we might find no strong or clear correlation between time on social media and level of mental disorder. We might even find that the non-users are more depressed and anxious than the moderate users, which some studies do find. What we see in this second case is that social media creates a cohort effect, something that happens to a whole cohort of young people, including those who don't use social media. It also creates a trap, a collective action problem for girls and for parents. Each girl might be worse off quitting Instagram, even though all girls would be better off if everyone quit. I mean, think about that. We have rewired childhood. I mean, I even notice now you, you, you go and you talk to somebody and you say, did you see my post? Or I posted about that. You know, they ask you a question. You say, yeah, I posted about that the other day. Or I posted about that today. My dad, who doesn't have social media, who doesn't have a smartphone, who doesn't have Internet, will ask me about what's on Twitter. Or I was watching a news story and, and they mentioned Twitter or they mentioned True Social. What do you know about that? So my dad, who doesn't have access to any of those things, is still being connected to social media. And then if you, if you find yourself saying, look, I'm going to get off of all these social media outlets, then you feel left out, like you're not in the know. Well, if I don't have access to all the information at all the time, then I'm, I'm not going to be able to have a conversation with someone about whatever happened in California or what happened in New York or what happened in Texas or what happened in Turkey. FOMO is what a lot of folks use, a fear of missing out. Well, we, even as adults, have that fear. I need people to know everything that I'm doing. I need to post about it. I need to talk about it. And if we're struggling with that as adults, with fully formed frontal lobes, what do you think our kids are doing? As their brain is still developing. And so, as this author said, it isn't, you know, back in the day, if you had one person on social media, and then that person decided to get off social media, they got better. But nowadays, when everyone, virtually everyone, is on Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or something, especially in that age group, and then they get off of that social media, they feel like they're being left out, like they're not a part of. Look, we homeschool our kids, and even at times they say, I need a phone. Why can't I have this? Why can't I have that? Why can't I be on YouTube? Why can't I have Facebook? Will you post that for me, Daddy? They don't even have social media, and they're thinking through the lens of making posts, letting other people see. And then we wonder why these kids lose their mind when you take their phone from them. Because they're addicted. And where do they get that addiction? Now again, I'm just saying we need to wrestle with this. 
I wouldn't look at my teenager and say, hey, here's a pack of cigarettes. Now be smart with it. Here's a 12-pack. Now be smart with it. Now we wouldn't do that. But with social media, with the smartphone, we say, Here, here's a smartphone. Now we got all the filters on it. We've done everything we can. Be smart with it. And then we're surprised when, when they're not smart with it. So at the very least, we need to wrestle with what this means. And when we come back, I want to give you kind of my synopsis on why today we looked at the topics we looked at and how all of them may just be connected. We'll talk more when we come back. So as we finish up today, look, we, we talked about in the first segment how young men are less likely to, to have friends. They're more likely to commit suicide. They're less likely to get married. I think it said 60% of young men are single. Then the second segment, we looked at the, the marriage numbers, the benefits of marriage, the stability, the longevity that comes with that, the health benefits, so not just from a biblical framework, but, but just benefits in general from being married. And then last segment, we looked at some correlation of social media use, smartphone use, and the depression that we're seeing in our young people. So how are all these things connected? It's connected because we are now pitching to young people, the generations to follow, a fake outlook on life. Now look, I have social media. I have Facebook. I have Instagram. And I'm as guilty as anyone of sometimes posting kind of the fakeness as if everything's okay. We only share the the positive moments of our life. And so we in that we create this fakeness. And then you, you tap onto that, the filters, and how everybody looks, and cyberbullying and, and all that comes with that, and you, you think about the ramifications of that on our young people. And as divorce rates are on the rise, then those young people are looking and saying, well, well, mom and dad fussed all the time. I don't want what they had. Well, mom and dad couldn't stay together, so what makes me think I could stay with somebody for a long period of time? Or I'll put off marriage as long as I can. Or I saw the stress that, that we caused our parents, so why would I want to have children one day? I saw the cost that it takes to support a family. Why would I want to step into that? I want my freedom. You see, so, so as a society, we have overcorrected. We have told young people they can be anything they want. They, they can achieve the American dream. They can find success. While also telling those young people that there are no gender roles. While also telling those young people that men are toxic and any form of masculinity is toxic. While also telling those young people and those young ladies, you, you don't have to have your baby. You can, you can abort that at any time. Don't let that baby ruin your dreams. While also telling those young people, you, you need to have access to all these things. 
You need to have a smartphone. You need to have social media. While also telling these young people that, hey, your secret's safe with us. We don't have to tell your parents anything. And then we wonder why depression is up. We wonder why marriage is declining. We have progressed to a point as a society where everything is literally at our fingertips. Life is easier now than it's ever been. And because it's easier now than it's ever been, we are seeking out, for some of us, we're seeking out hard things because we want to feel fulfilled. We want to feel like we're doing something meaningful. For others, because things have gotten so easy, we just feel worthless. And we sit alone and mope, or we sit alone in our anger. When the the benefits are right there in front of us, the studies are right there in front of us, and a secular culture doesn't know what to do with a study that shows the benefits of marriage. A secular culture doesn't know what to do with a study that says, you know what, marriage is good for men and women, it's good for kids, it's good for the educational system, it's good for a host of things. People feel better, they live longer, less depressed, they have companionship. But a secular culture can't say those things while also saying that men can be women and women can be men. You can't do that. And so we find ourselves in a situation and frankly an opportunity for the church to step up and say, in the way that Christ sacrificially loved the bride, that is what men are to do today for their bride. Marriage is a beautiful gift that God has given us. Parenthood is a beautiful gift that God has given us. So is the answer to the depressed, to the lonely, removing smartphones and removing social media? That could be part of the answer. But the ultimate answer is Jesus. That we would find our identity and our hope in Jesus. Not in a filtered post not in a social media outlet, not in the amount of friends that we have on Facebook or followers that we have on Twitter, but in the one that paid it all. We'll talk to you next time.